A very warm welcome to you this morning. Welcome to Lake Road Chapel, to our online services. Um, this morning I'll start by reading Psalm 13. That's Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Our sermon this morning is continuing our series in 1 Peter. And this morning we come to 1 Peter, the let, Peter's first letter, chapter 2, and we're reading in a few moments 13 to 17. I'll just give you a moment to turn to 1 Peter and chapter 2 in your Bible. Continue to pray with us, will you not, that uh, it will not be long before we can gather together as the church. We will be continuing to live, live stream or, pre, or record our services and make them available via video streaming um, because to make sure that all those, you know, that we don't leave people out who don't, who don't feel comfortable with coming when we are able to open our doors. But this morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. Please take your Bibles in hand and we'll pray before we read the Lord's word together. Oh Lord God, we pray that you would take these verses and our lives, bring the truth to bear upon us in such a way that we're equipped by your word and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we'll be reading verse 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Peter is applying the wonderfully rich theological principles that he has been talking about up until this point to our Christian lives. And he's going to speak about slaves and masters, husbands and wives. Today, in verses 13 through 17, we see how Christians should relate to the civil magistrate, to the government. 
which makes 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 very relevant. Very important today of contemporary significance. We've been confronted with the presence of systematic racism like never before in recent weeks. We live in a day when new laws affecting our liberty have been legislated in order to confront coronavirus. We live in a day of chaos, chaos and confusion as we contemplate how and at what speed to exit lockdown. Will our children ever go back to school? We are appalled by the mob violence that we see. People attacking the police with baseball bats and scaring horses. In 2020, we read and hear criticism of governments like never before. But even pre-coronavirus, no one would ever deny that the political landscape has become fraught and tense and seedy and sordid over the past years. Because the moral values that are embraced across the spectrum, across the spectrum, by leaders of all parties and none, run, run contrary to the values that we hold most dear as Christians, living under the authority of the word of God. It is becoming increasingly difficult to hold high office, public office, without affirming a social agenda which goes against our conscience, which goes against biblical ethics. Laws discriminate against businesses and public figures who embrace traditional biblical Christian values, especially in the area of gender and sexuality. How should we let then live faithfully as believers for the Lord Jesus Christ in days like today? 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17 helps us. I want you to think about the words that we read, the text that we read, God's word that we read under three headings. That we should have an attitude, we should adopt an attitude, a way of thinking about how we relate to government as believers. And then an approach, an approach to maintain how should we behave in relation to civil government. And thirdly, an agenda to pursue, a goal that we're aiming for as we think and as we live in these ways. By way of opening in 1650, sorry, in 1596, King James I of England, and at that point he was King James the whatever of Scotland, I should know my history better, but he had a private audience with a prominent Presbyterian Scottish pastor called Andrew Melville. 
And Andrew Melville had been sent, he was representing his colleagues, he was deputised by his colleagues because of concerns that the, the, the royal de, you know, decrees, the royal policy was undermining the gains for the gospel. The gains that had been made in Scotland as a result of the Protestant Reformation. And eventually Andrew Melville lost patience with King James though not losing courage. And Andrew Melville said, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. The Kirk, whose subject King James is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord or a head, but a member. Which is in a fairly amazing, courageous way to speak to the king in a day when the king had much more power, had almost absolute power. And although King James was supreme in the civil realm, in the church of the living God, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus is the only head, Lord and King. So King James had no more authority in the church than any other ordinary church member. Andrew Melville, Samuel Rutherford, as well as others, saw in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17, that we have resources that will help us respond to civil power, to governments, with respect, honour on the one hand, and courage and fidelity to the claims of King Jesus on the other. Not to capitulate in abject sub subjugation to a totalitarian state or to withdraw from society like monks because there were plenty of reformation groups that that, who thought you should do just that. In other words, now that they are citizens of the kingdom of God, they should have nothing to do with the world around them. So first of all, the first point is an attitude to adopt. What is our attitude? What is the attitude that believers must adopt? Well, Peter is talking about what government is, how we should think about government as Christian people. Notice what Peter says about the character of secular government. Look at the text in verse 13. Peter says we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the last phrase is significant. Secular government is a human institution. According to the rules of common sense and wisdom and prudence. You see, Israel in the Old Testament received its constitution directly from God. In Holy Scripture, a constitution which is now rendered obsolete by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, the New Covenant, there is no, thus saith the Lord, as to how any one particular nation should govern its affairs. There is no biblical political system that we can point to and say, that is universally binding on all people everywhere. 
No, it is a human institution to be arranged according to prudence, wisdom, common sense, given the circumstances and situation. And as we look around the world today, we see, don't we, different forms of government in different countries. I am a citizen under a limited monarchy with a parliamentary democracy. Other countries have a, a, a single party system. Some have absolute monarchs and there are other systems as well. I find myself, to be honest, agreeing with Winston Churchill who said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. The fact remains that there is no thus saith the Lord from Holy Scripture that we can force the conscience of any other person to obey when it comes to government. Democracy may well be the healthiest system that we can see, but we cannot, cannot say that God has ordained democracy for all people everywhere in the Scriptures. Peter says that forms of government are human institutions. But alongside all of that, Peter mentions another set of convictions to hold on to. If you look at verses 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the subjection of citizens to the emperor in Peter's time is to happen for the Lord's sake. It is a matter of obedience, obligation to God that Christians submit to the civil magistrate, both to the emperor as supreme and to the governors as sent by him. And the last phrase is important, as sent by him maybe better translated, sent through him. Peter is acknowledging that there are regional governors that the emperor deploys throughout the empire to extend his rule and to implement policy and law. But ultimately, behind all of that, behind the emperor, behind the governors, there is the living God who upholds and makes provision for government in the world. But if you put all of that together, what are we being taught? We've been taught that the form of government may be a matter of general prudence and common sense, as circumstance and wisdom dictate. And it means that we can have legitimate, frank, open debate about which approach to government best serves the common interests and so on. The form of government is open for discussion. It is a human institution. But the fact of government, Peter wants us to see, is a token of the sustained kindness and goodness of God. Who despite the sinfulness of human beings, in all places and at all times, limits the chaos and the wickedness of our hearts in his common grace, and makes provision to ensure that there is order and stability in society. 
Paul says in Romans 13, verse 1, which is a parallel passage to this one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is really important that we understand this government. How cynical and jaded we can be in these days, especially if we listen to the media, as we see the many and varied failures of our politicians paraded in technicolour every single day on our various media platforms. And we need to be reminded absolutely that government is a gift from God. It is a gift of God. It reminds us that God, it reminds us about the fabric of civil society, that God doesn't want it to descend into anarchy and chaos. And God restrains that by his common grace. And God ensures that there is some order that upholds the rule of law. So the character of government is here. Peter is telling us something about the mission and the character of civil government. Why has God ordained that there should be government, that there should be a prime minister, that there should be MPs, that there should be police officers? What is government for? We'll look at verse 13 and 14 again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, just take a step back with me and look at Peter's context. It's remarkable, this, when you see it in light of Peter's context. Peter is writing in the early years of Nero. Nero was an absolute oppressor. And at this point, Christians are facing social exclusion, verbal slander and assaults from their peers in society because of their faith in Jesus. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing God, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 12 says that if you stand up for Jesus and live for him, you will be spoken of as evildoers in the society. The opposition that the church is facing is verbal and social. But from this point on, under Nero, the persecution progressed. Until there was that widespread, dreadful persecution of the church for which Nero is so known, famous for. Before that began to sweep through the Roman Empire. And Peter is still saying, Peter is still saying, that in some sense, even Nero, even Nero's governors, the despots that rule under him, even they are sent to punish evil and to praise good. Romans 13 verse 3 puts it, God's servants, or literally his ministers for our good. The function of civil government, biblically understood, 
is the maintenance of the common good and the punishment of evil. And we have to acknowledge that even in terrible, tyrannical regimes around the world, then and since then, there still remains laws against murder and theft and things that threaten the most basic fabric of our relationships in society to protect all its citizens, which is the basic mission of civil government and God preserves it in the world. We should be thankful for our elected officials, all of them, even the ones we don't agree with, because they have been ordained by God for your good. We should be thankful as believers for our police officers. God has given them to us for our good. What difference does this make to us as Christian believers? That leads me to the second point, an approach to maintain. If you look at the text again, there is a stance, there is a way of living and behaviour in light of these convictions that we must maintain. Peter spells out the basic stance of a believer pretty clearly in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whatever rank of authority they may have. This is not an ambiguous statement. I shouldn't need to unpack it very much. We don't need to flog a dead horse. Be subject to human authority. Be a good citizen. As far as earthly laws do not require you to break God's law. Be a law-abiding citizen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And if you remember, Peter addressed his first readers as elect exiles of the dispersion. Exiles, sojourners. Peter has called them a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter reminds us that we're just pilgrims, just a passing through. This is not our home. We are temporary residents here. It might have been tempting for some of his listeners, for some of his hearers, for some of his readers, to now say that they are free as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, from any obligation to any earthly kingdom and any earthly ruler, especially Nero. Because after all, since this is not our home, they might have withdrawn from society or rejected civil authority and denied the rights of human institutions to exercise the rule of law over them. But Peter has been consistent and we see this time and time again we mustn't withdraw and we mustn't capitulate we must we mustn't follow the path of cultural accommodation or cultural isolation we don't form societies of our own cut off completely from the world but neither do we compromise with the world embracing its values as ours Instead, we must live a third way, the cross way, the cross-filled way. Peter says in verse 18, live as people who are free. We've been set free by the cross. 
Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That is, if you're a Christian, my friend, you are free. You are free. You are really free. You're eternally free. You've been set free. What from? A number of things. I'll just list a few. You've been set free from the burden of sin. You've been set free from your old self. You've been set free from the burden of the Old Testament civil and ceremonial law. You've been set free, as, as I've just said, from the dominion and the power of sin in your life. You've been set free from the tyranny and dominion of the evil one, the devil. You've been set free from the condemning wrath of God. You've been set free from the commandments of men that are contrary to the word of God. You're free if you're a Christian. Christ has died for you. He bore the penalty that you could not pay. He was bound and chained and beaten and he died for you. And in doing so, Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life. And now Christ has set you free. You are free indeed. Free from condemnation, free from spiritual bondage, free from guilt and free from the fear of death. Thank the Lord, praise God for the great privilege of Christian freedom of Christian liberty, which is blood-bought, my friend. It is paid for at the cross. There are no people as free as those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. You are free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We are free, not free to sin. We are free, not free to ignore common decency. We are free, but not to live without regard to the law of the land. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of the living God. Don't back off from society. Don't accommodate or compromise with the world, but be a better citizen. Because Christ has set you free indeed. Cherish your freedom. Cherish the Christ who won your freedom. By refusing to abuse your freedom. You see, Peter was writing in a day when people were suggesting that if you follow Jesus, it, make, it makes you antisocial. It makes you a suspect, both culturally and politically. And in those days, politics and religion and e economics and culture were all intimately interwoven. And here are believers, and they're not participating in the cult of the emperor. They don't worship the emperor. They worship Jesus. They don't eat in the pagan temple dining rooms, like everyone else, where so much business was conducted day by day. They didn't participate in the trade guilds where the other businessmen cooperated. They were different and as a result they were accused of being bad citizens and bad people. And if you think about it, 
That is the case today. That is the charge that is levelled against people who desire to be true followers of the way, to be true followers of Jesus, to be servants of God. That is the accusation that is levelled against you. If you don't embrace the world's view of tolerance, we cannot tolerate you. And so we see powers brought, legal and social, to bear upon believers in a, in a, in a way to make them conform. In the eyes of the liberal elites of our world today, to be a Bible-believing Christian makes you a bad neighbour, a bad member of the society, and a bad person. So look at the summary he gives us in verse 17 of how we should behave as followers of the living God, of servants of the living God and the risen Christ in these difficult days. He says, honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor. There's something ringing in those words. It's a wonderful sequence. It's a fascinating sequence. And one of the most startling things is that it begins and ends with honour. Honour everyone, honour the emperor. And remember again who the emperor was. The way that we treat, treat everyone else, the way that we treat this emperor is the same, which was revolutionary in the time. Because people were worshipping the emperor as God. They burned incense to the emperor as a god. But fear God, not the emperor. Fear God, worship God, but honour the emperor. There's a way to do it. There's a biblical way. Honour him in the same way you honour everyone else. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. And if you fear God, you honour them. Honour all people, including the emperor, who is just a man. That was then, it was then, and it's still now a challenging Message. If you think about it, so the society in Peter's time was segregated, was class orientated, and he's requiring believers, the church, followers of the, the living God, to honour everyone, which was shocking, including the emperor. Is it any less shocking for us that we're called to honour people who? that we would say are different to us, to honour them, to sit at their feet and learn from them, to respect and honour people of all ethnicity, because we're all made in the image of God. To honour people from every educational background. To honour people who went to university and to honour people who did not. To honour people from all economic or social classes. This is clearly a challenge for many today. But the biblical answer is honour everyone. Honour everyone. And at the level of ethics, think about how people operate at the level of ethics in our world, honouring those with whom we disagree. You just got to look at a social media feed to see the hate 
that is spewed out, the vitriol that is spewed out against people that you disagree with. That isn't honouring everyone. We live in a day when if you disagree with people, you are mean, you are hateful if you disagree. It's not loving to disagree. If you loved me, you would agree with me. Peter calls us to a completely different standard. The Bible calls us to a different standard. Jesus calls us to a different standard. We're to honour those with whom we differ. Honour everyone. Never back away from your convictions because you serve God. Don't change your ethics to accommodate those who might take offence. But honour those who reject your point of view. Honour everyone. Speak respectfully to those in authority, even when we don't like their policies or their personalities. And as believers, we don't parrot the sneering contempt with which the TV hosts and pundits traffic so glibly. Don't capitulate to the temptation to mock those with whom you disagree in the political landscape. Don't demonise or belittle. You can differ and show honour at the same time. It's the biblical way. Even if it means ourselves will be demonised and belittled. So Peter seems to anticipate that the stance that he's calling the church to take will expose them to real pushback. Even saying this this morning, I'm trusting in the Lord because I fear God. But it could expose to real pushback, persecution, opposition and suffering. So Peter does not simply call them to honour everyone, including the emperor. He calls them to love the brotherhood because it's going to be hard. We're going to need each other, brothers and sisters. We need to stand together. Love the brotherhood. We're going to need fellow workers, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are submitting to God and standing firm for the cause of King Jesus in these dark days. Honouring everyone, standing apart as necessary for the glory of King Jesus. We're going to need each other because it's hard. Love the brotherhood and do it all out of fear of God. Honour the emperor. Honour your prime minister. Honour your political leaders of whichever party. Honour those who have set over you in authority. Honour them out of fear of God. If you fear God, you will honour everyone. Honour for the Lord's sake. As a matter of Christian conscience, it speaks to our tone, our hearts and our attitudes. And just in case you missed it, Peter is not calling us to abject submission to every whim or decree of civil power. Peter himself is a model of civil disobedience when obedience to God is necessary. If you think about Acts 4, 19, when Peter and John are arrested and forbidden from preaching in the name of Jesus, and they say, Acts 4, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The same thing happens in Acts 
5 verse 29, the apostles are arrested and Peter is appointed as the spokesperson and then when they're forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus, he says we obey God rather than men. So let's be really clear, when, if a government requires the people of God, the followers of Jesus, to be quiet, to stop preaching Jesus, we can't obey. When the civil authorities require the church to affirm sexual sin as morally good, we can't and must not obey. When the civil authorities forbid, as they do in many countries, the worship of God, we can't obey. When the civil power requires the church to call evil good and good evil, the church can't obey. And yet even in those moments when obedience to God does require disobedience to the civil power, even then we are to honour those in authority out of the fear of God. It is precisely the model to which Peter will point to in just a few verses. In verse 21, for example, we find in Jesus, our Saviour himself. This is how our Lord responded to tyranny. This is how our Lord responded to this despotic civil authority in his own trial. When he was reviled, reviled not in return. Jesus did not compromise. Jesus did not back down from the path of obedience to which he was called. Knowing that path set him on a collision course with civil and religious authorities. Jesus did not waver, back down, but never once did he speak with anything less than honour and respect to those who God had placed in authority. Think about that. Now I say, I say respectfully and clearly, today is not a day to defy the government and go ahead and meet as churches until we are able to do so. That doesn't fall into the category of obedience slash disobedience. And thirdly, an agenda to pursue a goal. Submission to the civil authority is a manifestation of holiness, which is clear because Peter says we must submit for the Lord's sake. The ruling authorities have been put in place by the Lord himself to punish evil and to reward good. And when we submit to their just laws, we are in reality submitting to God, since he placed them over us. In these verses, Peter is not saying that all authorities are godly, but he's simply pointing out that it is the government's role to execute justice. However, other passages tell us that some authorities can become so corrupt that they cease to fulfil their God-given roles. And if the, civil command, if the civil authority commands us to sin, then we submit to God's rule rather than to do evil. But why should you live this way? Peter mentions two things that are our motivation for the glory of God, doxology, and for the extension of his kingdom, mission. I love this, doxology and mission. In verse 13, we're to take this stance for the Lord's sake. In verse 15, because it is the will of God 
in verse 16 as the servants of God in verse 17 fearing God. Why should you live like this? Why should you? For the glory of God, for the honour of God, the praise of God. You do it to show because of who Jesus is, because Jesus is in your heart. There is no fractious, complaining, bitter spirit in you, even when you differ and disagree, sometimes to your own great cost. You're willing to do it in humility, with kindness, showing respect. You do it for the glory of God and you do it for mission. Verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter, all the way through this letter, shows a concern for how the world is looking at the church and what the world thinks about the church's words and actions. And he sees here an opportunity for the gospel as Christians relate to the civil authority. Peter wants believers in Jesus to be better neighbours, more civil-minded, more charitable, more compassionate, more engaged in the care of the poor than anyone else. Peter wants good works to be on display in the lives of Christians, not that they can boast. So that those who are saying Christians are bigots, Christians are narrow-minded, Christians are evil, that their mouths are stopped. And that word he used for silence is a very strong word. It means to muzzle or to gag. And he wants your goodness to render those who oppose the gospel speechless, unable to open their mouths in opposition any longer. Peter wants our neighbours and our communities to open their mouths in praise to God and not in opposition to the call of King Jesus any longer. But even if they don't join you in following the way, because of your example, because of your witness, he is saying, I want you to live in such a way that they can't imagine life on your streets without you around. Which, which is what it means to be an exile, a sojourner, a pilgrim, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, living in the midst of the kingdom of this world. It doesn't mean withdrawal. It doesn't mean to back off. It doesn't mean anarchy, but it does mean praise. It means mission. It means engagement, bearing witness to a different way of living, a cross way of living, a different world which comes as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may God help us to be good citizens of the kingdom of the world because we are first citizens of the kingdom of King Jesus. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen. I'm going to close by reading... Some words from the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.